entering the Freedom Hut. Democrats don't believe in the right to self-defense. Pandemic panic 2.0 is upon us. Are face mask mandates constitutional? Justice Roberts betrays the Constitution. Was there a Russian bounty on U.S. troops and the Washington Post's best fact check ever? This This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to Buck Sexton Show, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. A privilege and a pleasure. I had missed you all over the weekend. I do like to have some downtime, but quite honestly, it's just not the same when I don't get a chance to talk to all of you across the country and in some cases even around the world. I miss it. It's a purpose that I feel every morning as I wake up. Got to rock the Freedom Hut. Here we are, much to get to. The, the single biggest uh, recognition, realization that I've had in recent weeks, and it's been growing over time, but when we talk about a revolution and overturning society, all of these very um, extreme terms, I think we need to make sure that we understand exactly what it is, what evidence we have to point to that those uh, those views, those conclusions are warranted. And that then brings me to what I see happening increasingly uh, with the left, the Democrats. And again, those terms are interchangeable. The Democrats are the left. The left are Democrats. The left just encompasses a little bit more than the mainstream Democrat Party. You know, I mean, I guess technically the hard left anarchists out there think that they're something other than Democrats Antifa and whatnot, although not all of them. So we, are ha- we have some basic agreements in society. There are some things that we all are supposed to see eye to eye on, irrespective of politics. And what we've entered here is a political campaign, which is what's going on. The rioters in the streets, the attacking of stores, the looting, the arson, the destruction and defacing of statues that are, are priceless and that are pillars of our shared history in some cases— and civilization, all of that, all of that is different from what we normally think of as political debate and exchange, because it's about changing the very foundation, the underlying, the the, the bedrock of our society. It's not arguing over the marginal tax rate. This isn't a question of one specific foreign policy decision. You know, should we intervene in some country or not? That's a political question. Should we all agree that human beings have a right to self-defense? That shouldn't be a political question. We're supposed to all agree on that. And then perhaps some policies that come from that, some policies that are linked to the implementation of that principle, that's where there could be some disagreement. But what I'm increasingly seeing from the mob, the Democrat mob, is a complete rejection of some of these shared principles. And I'm not saying this is the first time or this is brand new, but this is what we have to understand to really come to grips with this movement. It's not that they want to make sure the salt tax deduction is is changed the way that it has been or never goes back to what it was before. No, they want you to understand that we're going to be living in a society increasingly where historical oppression is used to determine your access to the law and to its protection. 
meaning there will be some protected groups and some unprotected groups that based upon the rage of those destroying buildings, uh, calling for the defunding of cops, attacking law enforcement officers, some laws just frankly don't count anymore. We've already seen this with vandalism. Until recently, it would have been a widely shared uh, belief. It would have been a widely shared belief that you can't destroy property that's not yours without consequence. But no, no, that, that has gone out the window. That has been tossed aside. And until recently, if you were in credible fear of your life, as well as your property, you would be able to at least mount some defense of that. Now, this brings me to the video that we you've likely seen at this point from over the weekend, a video of a uh, a lawyer, a lawyer and his wife. I believe they're both lawyers in St. Louis, and they stepped in front of their it's like a restored palace. It's a very nice house that has taken, from what I understand, a very long time to put into its current condition, millions and millions of dollars going to the renovation and a mob broke into a gated community and stepped onto their property and was chanting and screaming. Now, I have to tell you, my friends, if that's my house and I'm prepared enough to have a semi-automatic rifle, I'm not going to sit there and hope that they don't start throwing bricks through my windows and maybe see if they can get in through the front door standing in front of your home with your lawfully owned firearm. Remember, we had all these people with firearms in Seattle in the Chaz. Media had no problem with that. Now, they're declaring an autonomous zone, which is illegal and is really an act of insurrection in Seattle. But perhaps we'll get to that later. This individual standing outside of his house or these individuals, a husband and wife. This is a fundamental American right to self-defense and defense of one's property defense of one's rights you don't have to wait to be victimized this is what the left is rejecting in all of this all of a sudden they're calling for oh he brandished a weapon in violation of statute oh now there's sticklers for the law now the letter of the law and by the way the letter of the law has to be taken into account fully here this was not public property this is on private property and they were in credible fear of assault now, the, now, they would not have the right without an actual attack of some kind to use those firearms, but to stand outside your home with them? What law does that break? Ah, but the left doesn't like this, you see, because they've been getting away with the threat of force for so many weeks. Getting away with the threat and the use of force with very little pushback from the federal level, very little pushback from the state level. They like this. They like the sense that they own the streets and can do what they want without consequences. The moment that citizens, civilians, who have recourse to the Second Amendment, which we do not really here in New York City, I'll just have you know. So at least in St. Louis, as many problems as that city has, and I know it does have a substantial violence problem, among the worst in the entire country, uh, but at least law-abiding citizens are able to have weapons there. This is a reminder, my friends, this whole situation, not just what happened in this uh, video that you can see in St. Louis. This whole situation is a reminder 
of why the Second Amendment is so important and why the left hates it so much. They seek to coerce you. They seek to use either actual force or the imminent threat of force to get you to shut up, do exactly as they say about everything. There is no part of your life that is not subject to their whims. There is no aspect of your day-to-day existence that they will not seek to control. We see this happening. Wear a mask, peasant. Stay inside. Don't go to church. Can't go to your job. Oh, but a bunch of lunatics marching, screaming, yelling, saying they want to overturn the United States government. They want to destroy things, destroy the destroy the cops. That's fine. But you can't go to your job. You better wear a mask and shut up or else. This is why we have the Second Amendment as a defense against tyranny and, of course, the inherent right to self-defense that coming uh, that comes from being armed. We are all getting a reminder of that right now. I am torn between leaving where I live in New York City because I don't want to just completely hand over my home, my hometown to the mob and going to a place where at least I know that I'd be able to have an AR, a platform I'm very well trained on, know quite well, I'm very comfortable with. And it would be a bad idea for a violent mob to storm my house if I were inside with a semi-automatic rifle. A very bad idea indeed. And this is a reminder, I think, to the mob across the country that there are limits just because the police, because of politicians uh, telling them to, aren't able to fully do their jobs. Just because the police know that they will not have the political backing they need to enforce the law, it does not mean that everyone plans on being helpless. Now, you might say, Buck, that's one instance, but I would say, no, there are so many of these. If I see one more video, I, there was a, there's one over the weekend of protesters mobbing a car, including a police car. And bashing on the on the hood and smashing on the windshield and the and the driver's side, and the passenger side windows, mobbing that car. Uh, what if they just want to flip the car over, which is not hard for a mob to do? Are you supposed to just stay inside that vehicle? You're supposed to wait until you're turned upside down, completely helpless, and then hope that the mob doesn't drag you out and beat you to death. The Democrats say yes. These cowards, these complete and utter moral failures from the billionaire libs out there and the millionaires in the media at CNN and MSNBC and CBS News and ABC and all across corporate America, moral cowards. Oh, they would call the police right away. They would want private security. But you, peasant, you're supposed to wait in your vehicle until it is flipped upside down, you're helpless, and then just leave yourself to the mercy of the mob. That has already committed destruction, vandalism, assault, menacing. Leave yourself to the mercy of the mob and hope that they don't decide to make an example of you, perhaps in front of your wife or children. No, that's not the country we're going to be living in. This is going to get to a point where they will learn a very unfortunate lesson if this continues, whether it's from law enforcement or another law-abiding citizen who says, I'm not going to be a victim of this. I'm not going to wait until they... You know, shatter my nose and uh, put me in fear for my life and then go in and loot and ransack my business because they hate the cops so much. Oh, because of all of the what? The what? What are all these protests even about? The evil statues? Oh, so any one of us can be attacked because people are upset about evil statues that have been around for decades and decades. You know, take it. 
Take, take it to City Hall, my friends. There's a political process for removing statues. We are seeing what they're really all about here. They want to take away your right to defend yourselves. They want you to be entirely in the hands of the state. And you know you can't trust this state. You can't even trust this administration to protect you because they don't have state police powers. So there's only so much that they're going to do. And if you are unfortunate enough to live in a city anywhere in America right now, name a city. I mean, a city with over, you know, two or three hundred thousand people. You're at the mercy of Democrats, my friends. You are at their mercy. Oh, no, they don't want the cops to come down too hard on the protesters. So what if your business was destroyed? So what if you have mobs marching past your home at night in violation of our our distancing, social distancing requirements, which we're all told we had to have for months? No, you're just supposed to be quiet and take it while they seize control of this country through the constant threat of force. Do these pro- these protests without the Antifa, without the BLM uh, most hardline elements that are saying that cops are evil and that then go break things and loot things and, and threaten people and scream curses at the police. Without them, no one even pay attention to this because the message isn't a good one. The message is worthless and it constantly changes because the real message is we are the mob. We are the Democrat Party. We hate Trump. We need to be in charge. We're going to make it so we are in charge. You don't have a choice in the matter. That's the real message of this movement. And when you look into the eyes of leftist revolutionaries, one thing that they never want to see as they look back at you is that you are armed and say, I don't care what the state can or can't do. There are some lines you shall not cross. And if you do, you will learn a lesson that you will never forget. The left hates that. The Democrat Party seeking to control you hates that. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I like this lady. She was at the Teddy Roosevelt statue protest here in New York City on Sunday. And she's just saying, you know, I'll stand where I want. You back off, little boy. The kid's standing there. He's got an American University T-shirt on, of course. College kid or somebody so recently out of college that he thinks that advertising what uh, uh, completely overpriced $60,000 a year third tier school he went to is something that, you know, he should be walking around talking about all the time. But she's just bringing a little bit of common sense. We need more of this. We need more people to say, what are you talking about? I can stand wherever I want. I can say whatever I want. Notice how this, this, remember, he's a counter protester. There's just people gathering at a protest, but the libs can't allow other people to have a protest without showing up and going, and screaming and acting like spoiled children. It doesn't matter what age they are. They act like spoiled, spoiled children. And he immediately reverts back to check your privilege, check your privilege. What does, what does that even mean? How, how does that have any 
bearing on this discussion where she's saying that I want this Teddy Roosevelt statue to stay. I'm peacefully, entirely peaceful. Notice how the conservatives get together for the Teddy Roosevelt statue. No violence, no destruction, no attacking cops. Just like the Tea Party, however many hundreds and hundreds of big rallies there were across the country, no violence, no attacking cops, no undermining the American Republic by pretending to care so much about the oppressed. Oh, my gosh. All the white liberals are just like so upset about the oppressed and like they've had enough. Like they've heard about it in their women and gender studies classes at Mount Holyoke College. And the police are just like uh, like a weapon of authoritarian colonialism. And I just feel like, oh, my gosh, what are we? Come on, let's all live in the real world. Let's all deal with what we are supposed to all want. This is what the American people are, are before this madness. Before people are saying things like check your privilege. That's a that's an act of white supremacy. Uh, really liking the cops, thinking that law enforcement, per, perhaps the single most essential public uh, public service that anyone can provide in any neighborhood anywhere. And the public sector, certainly it is. I, I know firefighters you're great too but i mean come on check your privilege there are the things that we're all supposed to supposed to agree upon we want to live in safe neighborhoods we want there to be order in the streets we want to be able to be peacefully in our own homes without fear of attack we want to be able to open and run our business without fear of destruction or you know being shut down by the mob or by the state because they're panicking because of the mob these things are all being taken away this is all there's there's not this common ground that usually exists in American politics. We are dealing with extremists. You have to remember this. We are dealing with extremists. They just happen to be a part of the Democrat Party. But that does not mean that they are not outside of what we had agreed was America for a very long time, that they're not pushing for things that in a more sane period would be considered anathema outrageous absurd defund police no intelligent person can think that that's a smart strategy or policy particularly in a large city where there's a lot of crime the libs the democrats are saying it now no common ground from them thanks for listening to the bus sex and show podcast remember to subscribe on apple podcast the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts it's really a hard issue for me and as a pro-life American, I also believe that all life matters, born and unborn. But what, what I see in the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement is a political agenda of the radical left that would defund the police, that would leave that uh, out of it, just tear the down phrase. monuments, that would that would press a a, a radical left agenda that uh, and 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 support calls for the kind of violence that has beset the very communities that they say that they're advocating for. But, the, but sir, we, I, I've literally met I've literally met with African American leaders uh, around this country and. In, in the national capital area who've, who made it clear to us they, they want law and order, uh, they, they want peace in our streets. So you won't say Black Lives Matter? John, I really believe that all lives matter. Okay. And that's where the heart of the American people lies. Don't we all see the game here? Just repeat their slogan. 
The slogan is designed so if you don't repeat it, they can call you a racist. But of course, if you say the slogan, you're not just making the statement of the slogan, you are bending the knee to the movement. That's what this is. We have to keep going through this. The position of conservatives, the right, the position of moral and decent human beings is that every life matters, including the lives of the unborn Democrats, that all lives matter. So, of course, all lives matter includes all black lives matter, too. But to say that you have to agree, don't black lives, don't black lives matter, say that black lives matter. This is this is to get a soundbite of you agreeing with a political party. It's not about the statement. The statement has already been affirmed. The statement is affirmed constantly. In fact, the statement is affirmed by saying all lives matter. But this is the way that they use language as a form of coercion and entrapment. We can all see it. We're not idiots. We understand what they're doing. Why won't you say that black lives matter? Well, of course, I I believe I believe that. But if you start chanting black lives matter, black lives matter, you're a part of the movement. Right. You're you're a part of the movement. You know, it would be no different. Imagine if you were a, a Christian and you were told to say, well, you believe in God, right? And I say, yes, I believe in God. And just say, well, there is no God but God. Just say that. And you would say, well, of course I believe that, but why are you construct? Why is this construct so important to you? Why are you trying to get me? Just say there is no God but God. And I would say, well, clearly, as a Christian, I believe that, but why do you? No, no, just say there is no God but God. And then we all know that the dot, dot, dot is, and Allah is his, I mean, and uh, Muhammad is his prophet. Right? There is no God. And it's actually, there is, you know, anyway, we, we won't get to, I'm not trying to get into a whole religious thing here, but I'm just saying it's a very similar tactic, right? It's to use language to get a political concession by pretending that the words are just the words when we all know that the concept that the words have now become, Black Lives Matter, is not just a phrase, it is also a movement. It is a political movement, quite explicitly, quite openly. But you have to affirm it, you know? What if there was a political party called democracy, or rather, Democrats are better than Republicans? Would we all have to walk around constantly saying, well, uh, there's this political party, Democrats are better than Republicans, you know? Or what if there was a political party called Republicans are racist? And that's what I was, you know, and and I was like, no, I'm not going to, well, that's just the name of my political party. Just say it. Republicans are racist. That's my political party. I, I've, I've got it. Uh, you know, I've got a, an official office somewhere for my political party. And, you know, we're getting someone added to the ballot. Why won't you just say it? You know, it, it's the same idea. We all understand this, but it's very it's it's pernicious and it's pervasive. This is what they do. They pretend it's just why won't you say this? Why won't you say do they really think that Mike Pence think, well, think about how what an evil twisted little game this is they think mike mike pence doesn't believe that that the lives of black people matter what a horrific thing to say but that's what the game is right oh if you won't say what we want you to say i think you're probably an evil racist it's it's disgraceful uh, the political movement of black lives matter uh, we've already seen the results of it it's it, it had its day before and now it has come back it is destructive it advocates for bad policies it worsens racial strife and division in this country. It does not improve minority communities. It does not make anyone, particularly minorities in high crime areas, safer. And all it does is 
erode social trust. It makes the law seem like it's a weapon of oppression when it's not. And it makes us all trust one another less and wonder if we even have the same goals for society in mind. That's what the movement ends up doing. But all it takes is just a name, a name that in and of itself is used as a tool of propaganda when there is zero disagreement with the actual words. Of course, of course. But they know this. They know this. And then there's just the stupid policies that come from it, which the Democrats are all about. Notice that you haven't I have not heard a single prominent Democrat have one really angry word of criticism about not not just Black Lives Matter, the movement. I mean, about the looting, the rioting, the violence. No, it's always well, you know, the peace, the protest was peaceful. The protest was peaceful. Oh, that's how they're going to play it, huh? Mostly peaceful is actually what they say, because it wasn't peaceful. Um. Here is, though, Nancy Pelosi telling us all about how much the legislation she's passing would do for America. Play 14. I I think George Floyd's murder would have been prevented if our bill that we have now is um, we're we're the law of the land. And that's what we're talking about is how we go forward. Yeah. I don't have any, I have no, no, I do not, I do not, I do not, I'm telling you, we're talking about something that is uh, an incident that everybody saw, the martyrdom, everybody saw eight minutes, 46 seconds of a knee on the neck, that should, and then they come up with a bill that says, or the president comes out with his whatever it is, saying, um, uh, no chokeholds, but maybe some, I, I want to understand how, how would Nancy Pelosi's bill save George Floyd's life exactly? I have yet to hear a single cop say that that was proper procedure or that. But this is what Democrats do, right? There's a there's a mass shooting somewhere. Let's change gun laws that wouldn't have stopped that mass shooting. But, you know, everyone's upset. Let's change gun laws that won't prevent any actual crime, but it'll agitate lawful gun owners and the NRA. And so it's worth it to to exploit this moment of of heightened emotion for that. Federal federal bills to address law enforcement, when if you look at a graph of violence in this country over the last 30 years, it has been going steadily down. Our cops are overwhelmingly doing a fantastic job of keeping order and safety in our country. And the only real exception to that you can point to, I think this is certainly worthwhile, uh, comes to us courtesy of Democrat control, that the Democrat Party uh, that 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 is in charge of. And this was the big line. The Democrat Party is in charge of the, the 20 most violent places across most violent cities across the country. And I mean, I, I think this may be one of the greatest Washington Post fact checks of all time. The Washington Post looked at Trump's line that the 20 most violent cities across the country are um, are controlled by Democrats. And that was what Trump said. And there was a big, oh, gosh, that's this is the greatest Washington Post fact check of all time. That's not true. The The WAPO fact check here. Trump keeps claiming that most dangerous cities in America are all run by Democrats. The most dangerous cities in America are all run by Democrats. They aren't. Great headline, Washington Post. But here's the problem. 
when you get down into the data, technically they are right. 19 of the 20 most dangerous cities, 19 of 20 folks, 95% of the most dangerous cities in America are run by Democrats. Take that, Trump and Republicans. We're almost 100% in charge of the worst, most violent cities in the United States. But not 100. There's one. There's one city that's, uh, that's Republican. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to remember which one it is here. Yeah, it is Jacksonville, Florida. Ah, oh, there we go. Jacksonville, Florida per... Oh, I'm sorry. And that's only overall crime. If you do it per capita, it's Springfield, Missouri. But the other worst cities for violence are Memphis, St. Louis, Detroit, Baltimore, Stockton, California, Cleveland, San Bernardino, California, Oakland, California, New Orleans, Albuquerque, Milwaukee, North Las Vegas, Houston, Wichita. And there's a few others in there, too. All Democrat run. Every single one of them. So if Democrats have all these great ideas to fix policing and to make us all safer, why aren't they just doing them? Anyone ever asked that question? You know, if de Blasio here in New York, the worst mayor, really the worst politician in America in terms of results, I know he got to be mayor, which is a, a forever, you know, an, an ignominious stain on, this, on the uh, history of this city. But if they're so good at fixing things and making people safer and making things better, why aren't they just doing it then? They don't need Republicans. They've got control. Oh, because they're full of it. Because actually Democrat policies overwhelmingly, especially their approach to public education, the welfare state, the complete lack of any focus on the family and keeping helping keep in, uh, families intact. Uh, that is terrible for high crime areas of the country. Uh, uh, by the way, of all racial backgrounds, if you have the dissolution of the family and you have low levels of education, whether you're talking about eastern Kentucky or western Baltimore, things go badly for the people who live there. But the most violent, most violent cities in the country, 19 out of 20 are Democrat. Take that, Republicans. You got one. Almost all the rest are the party of the donkey. Democrats. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Well, Joe Biden doesn't really have much of an agenda. Joe Biden is hiding out in his basement. He has been a weather vane for the Democratic Party fads and fashions for the last 50 years. That's why he was always soft on communism in the Soviet Union. That's why he always voted to outsource our jobs to China, why he still, to this day, says that China is not one of our competitors. But that means when he gets in office, he is simply going to be a vessel for the radical left of the Democratic Party, whether it's Elizabeth Warren's economic policies or the mobs that we see in the streets tearing down statues in an instance of mob violence or passing a D.C. statehood bill. Cotton is at least a fighter. I feel like the Republicans in office right now and some of the top people around Trump and on this campaign are, are not fighters. There's a lack of, you know, there's a lack of urgency and ferocity in the message. But Cotton understands, Senator Cotton, uh, what's at stake because he also knows that this, this Joe Biden decision was very deliberate by the Democrats. Uh, Joe Biden is someone who can get a large turnout from the black community 
and Joe Biden once he's in office, right? So that's step one. And then once he's in office, Joe Biden will do whatever the Democrat apparatus wants him to do. Whatever they decide, he will go along with. There's nothing that he will say, okay, come on. Now, you might say, oh, but look at Trump and everything. And I say, look, Trump, you know, I remember I sat on the Bill Maher panel and it was a it was a rough week the second time that I, that I did it because the people were just dumb and delusional that were sitting next to me um, and just petty and saying saying like unserious and, and ridiculous things. And when there's four of them, you're kind of just like, what? what's going on here? Uh, but I, I remember that the, the story that uh, E.J. Dion from Washington Post, who's just a clown, not very bright. I don't know why anyone thinks he's got anything worthwhile to say. Uh, E.J. Dion said that, you know, this is the most radical Republican Party. And he's written a book on this, of course, the most radical Republican Party of all time. Look at the Trump presidency. What's radical about it? Uh, Trying to actually build a barrier on our southern border, which we've now been told because we've had the argument about this publicly. Walls do work. The fence does work. And there was a bipartisan bill passed in 2006, the Secure Fence Act, to construct a wall. So this is radical? No, this has just been the policy. But Democrats don't. Democrats pretend that they're along with border security until it's time to get votes. And then they say, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. Let's not. We're a nation of immigrants. That's what they all love to say. The Statue of Liberty would weep when she saw this wall. Uh, What is the radical stuff from Trump? Not starting unnecessary wars. I remember we were told the trade deal with China was going to be such a horrible idea. Anyone, anyone want to give an apology to Trump over that one? But I point all of this out because they are doing this every day now. They're, they're just pretending that the Republican Party is so radical and, and is so reckless when what we've seen from the left, whether it's the Green New Deal, any number of these things, they're appalling. They're appalling and they're radicals. And we know this and they say this, but they're going to vote for Joe Biden because that's the big head fake. Oh, they're hoping people in Ohio and people in Florida and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin are going to say, you know, Joe Biden's been around for a long time. How bad can Joe Biden really be? The answer is really bad. The answer is really bad because it's not about what Biden wants. It's what they tell Biden to do, what they tell Biden to sign. And he has no he has no ethics or moral core. He'll do whatever, whatever's most popular before they decide that he actually is too senile. And then they have to replace him probably in the second or third year of the first term. That's the plan. That's the plan. And Democrats have even been saying this when they thought that maybe they could not have Biden as their nominee in the early stages. And now they go, oh, oh, I never said that. I also just want to note this when I was talking to you before about the Washington Post fact check. Uh, Washington Post reporter Karen Atia tweeted this out over the weekend. This is a quote. She deleted this tweet, but I thought you should know this is what the Washington. This, these are some of the folks at the Washington Post or this is a, a person at the Washington Post. Uh, what she really thinks when, you know, when things are tough in the country right now, here's what she has to say. Staff writer, the second most prestigious liberal liberal newspaper in the country. Quote, the lies and tears of white women hath wrought the 1921 Tulsa massacre, the murder of Emmett Till, exclusion of black women from feminist movements, 53% of white women voting for Trump. White women are lucky that we are just calling them Karens and not calling for revenge. You think she's going to even get reprimanded for that by her employer at the Washington Post? Nope. Nope. You can say anything you want about Karens. You can threaten violence as a reporter against Karens. No problem. America has sins it must atone for, you see. 
Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Is it time to mandate the wearing of masks across the country? Oh, I definitely long overdue for that. And my understanding that the Centers for Disease Control has recommended the use of masks, but not de- demand uh, required it because they don't want to offend the president. And the president should be example. You know, real men wear masks. Be, be an example to the country uh, and wear the masks. Not only to, it's not about protecting yourself, it's about protecting others. Just remember, when anyone says to you, come on, don't use words like tyranny to describe the Democrats. They're our fellow Americans, and they just want what's best for us, too. Oh, no, they want tyranny, folks. They want to be able to tell you what to do, how to do it, when to do it. And if you don't comply, they will lock you up, take your money, ruin you. That's how they, that's how they do things. That is, that is an ethos. That is the core of the Democrat Party today. There's no, there's no like, we're going to act in good faith and we can see your side of this. No, no, no. They, they want your annihilation. They want your destruction. So just understand that. Make no mistake about it. And the mask mandate is something that you're going to hear a lot more about because they love this idea. Think about this. If they can tell you that you have to wear a mask, I want to know what do they think that they can't uh, demand of you, right? What do they think is beyond their purview? They already can regulate inactivity thanks to Obamacare, and now they'll be able to tell you you have to wear a mask, and what will be the sanction for not to... Are are they going to arrest people? Remember, the law without force isn't really a law. So what does this mandate mean? You're going to start locking people up because they won't wear a face covering when they're healthy? Think of how much of an expansion of government authority this is. They have a rationale that is not, in fact, proven scientifically and has, in some instances, been disproven, meaning that the necessity for masks outdoors is close to zero. I mean, if you can social distance even a little bit and you are out or you're outside, especially in warm weather, seems very unlikely that you're going to spread this disease to anybody. But I need to be sure of what exactly it is we're being asked. There are tens of thousands of people who die from the flu every year. Why aren't we all mandated to wear masks all the time for flu? At what point is it just too annoying? At what point is it just you won't comply? And what happens when you don't comply? They're going to ask you nicely? No. The government eventually only has one thing that it can do. It only has one fallback. Force. The use of force. You will do this or we will arrest you. You will let us arrest you or we will arrest you to the ground. We will arrest you to the ground or we will taser you and so on and so forth. That's what it is. That's re- that is the underlying truth of things like mask mandates. It's not just something that they say that isn't going to be uh, isn't going to be isn't going to be a cause for concern. And, and I keep saying this masks. You know, why don't we have to wear them for the flu? Oh, because this is so much worse than the flu. But okay, but if it's something that's so important, why don't we want to save lives during the flu, too? Because it's too annoying. Oh, that's right. That's correct. Because it is stifling, because it's a massive infringement upon one's ability to enjoy one's life. Walking around with a mask in your face in 85 degree weather is not fun. And we're going to have to do this forever. This is the other part of it they don't tell you. Or until November. 
Maybe after November, they'll start to get a little more lax, you know, once Biden wins. We're not we're not getting rid of this disease entirely anytime soon. We're already being told that there's a record number of, of cases. Some of it is testing, but some of it is not. It has been spreading in, in communities, uh, particularly in the South and the Southwest. So what are we telling ourselves about this? We mask until when? We lock down until when? Oh, this is about hospital capacity again? Okay, well, if it's about hospital capacity, then, you know, certain areas of the country would, would enhance restrictions. And look, we all signed on for that. We don't want people to not be able to get hospital treatment if they get this. But that should only be in places where there's a real risk of overrunning the hospital, which will be able to be t- uh, dealt with within a week or two. All right. If you put, if you have a restrictions in place for a week or two, then the hospital should be able to handle the excess or the, the increase in capacity. Uh, but you're not being told a lot of things that are necessary to understand why we're in pandemic panic 2.0, because that's where we are right now. They're trying to convince people that this is as bad or worse than what we faced back in uh, March and April. Even though the national death rate per day from COVID-19 is down 75 percent. So right now, do you ever hear that statistic that when you look at this, you say, hold on, wait, how many people? Oh, we're down. It's getting close to 80 percent daily deaths from this disease. But does it sound like that? that? That's the single most important metric there is, right? That's the thing that you can't hide from. And and there are even people that say, well, some of these deaths are actually with covid, not from covid. But I'm not getting into that debate right now. Here's what uh, Dr. Fauci, who's back now, you know, I'm here to remind you about the hand washing, about the mitigation and, you know, the data. Look, we don't really have an answer. We don't know if we're ever going to have a cure. Maybe the vaccine works. Maybe it don't. Maybe the hand washing really helps a lot or not. I don't know. Does it come through the eyes, the nose? You know, the virus is very small. Like, like really tiny, small, you know, when you get something stuck in your tooth and it's like you're trying to like get it out, but it's really stuck in there and it's a virus is smaller than that. Play clip six, please. People took the attitude in some places of either all or none, either you're locked down or you just let it fly and you just ignore many of the guidelines of physical distancing, wearing a mask, shaking hands, avoiding, I mean, not shaking hands, avoiding uh, crowds. And what happened is you see pictures on the TV of the fact that even in states that are telling their citizens to do it correctly, they're doing that. There are crowds, they're not physical distancing, and they're not wearing masks. That's a recipe for disaster. It's something I spoke about time and again. We do need to open up again, no doubt about it. We want to get the economy back, but you've got to do it in a measured way. And now we're seeing the consequences of community spread. There's going to be community spread anyway. It's going to keep happening. How many times do we have to go through this? Protect the vulnerable. Most of the, of the uh, uh, I think it's 50% roughly, of the, the new cases in Arizona are people under 35. They're basically all going to be fine. Protect the vulnerable. Stop pretending that 30 and 40 year olds should stop living their lives. And 20 year olds and 15 year olds should stop living their lives because of this disease. Yes, if you have somebody at home who's going to be at higher risk, 
be a little more cautious, be a little more careful. But we, you know, we can't have, there's this dissonance. Okay, we have to reopen. We have to reopen, but we, but we can't reopen. We have to reopen, but there's community spread. Well, which is it? There is no reopening without fear and without the reality of this respiratory disease in society. This seems to be the part of this philosophically that we have so much trouble with as a society. And, you know, look, the American death rate overall is way lower than uh, comparable European countries. So there's definitely some aspects of our response. And that's just because we have better health care. Oh, what a shock. You mean the socialist health care countries aren't some panacea? Yeah. The morons are wrong there once again. But the truth is that we are limping toward eventual herd immunity. We're just doing it with the maximum amount of petty tyranny, hypocrisy, stupidity, anxiety, and economic pain, courtesy of our feckless political class. We have to live life. We have to find a way forward with this disease in the background. People die from a lot of things every day across the country that they wouldn't die from if we all stayed locked in our homes. We can't do this anymore. I, I don't. I don't want to hear all the ah, fear monger. We can't do it. No. They they said hospital capacity. Any lockdown that is not directly related to a short term hospital capacity issue in a certain part of the country is unacceptable. There's no. I'm just looking at what they told us. The same experts. They promise one thing. They keep doing another. We had silence from the public health community while the protesters were massing all over the country. The looters, some of them were in masks, which is a you know bonus for them, of course, but a lot of them weren't. But even still, if masks were all you needed, it's masks plus social distancing. If masks were all you needed, then why have lockdowns at all? Just have everyone wear masks. We can go to the movies. We go to the gym. Everyone wears masks. Everything is fine. No, social distancing was the other necessary piece of the advice, and that was completely abandoned, completely abandoned for weeks. And now you have all these protesters. I'm sorry, you have all these media outlets are saying the protesters aren't the reason for the surge, really. In Minneapolis, the most recent data I saw is that the, the spike in cases is overwhelmingly from people under 40. Oh, what do we think? What do we think might have played a role in that? Not a lot of 65-year-olds marching for three hours in a protest where they might get tear gassed. I'm not saying there are none, but there are very few. Who's at the protests? People 25 to 35 or 20 to 35. That's who's at these protests. But we're going to ignore that. Remember, they're, they're not going necessarily into the office much more than they were before. What is the big change? They keep saying it's the reopening, my friends. Don't let them get away with this. The politics of this couldn't be any more clear. But, you know, ultimately what we see is that right now in America, we are living in a time of mass hysteria combined with mass media. And the results are not good. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
There's another way this is different uh, from early on, and that is that uh, one of the things that we've heard uh, in Texas and Florida in particular uh, is that uh, nearly half of those who are testing positive are Americans under the age of 35. That's contributing to the fact that, that those that are requiring to be hospitalized who are testing positive for coronavirus is significantly lower than it was two months ago. And so we, we really believe that, that uh, what, what is happening here is a combination of increased testing. Uh, we're able to test a great deal more Americans than we were able to several months ago. But it also may be indication that as we're opening our economy up, that, that younger Americans have, uh, have been congregating uh, in ways that uh, may have disregarded the guidance that we gave on the federal level for all the phases of reopening. And I think that's why you see several governors taking action to, uh, to, uh, to, 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 to essentially try and, and, and prevent further increases in those new cases. It's mostly young people driving the spikes. This is what he's telling us. That's important for us all to know. That's important for us to hear because younger people are at very low risk of mortality from this disease. You know, and now if we're just talking about, you know, un, uh, uncomfortable symptoms and, well, it's very similar to the flu, which tens of millions of people get every single year. Do I think the flu is very bad? Yes. Do I want to get the flu? No, I do not. Do I think that society should be shut down because people are going to get the flu and it'll make them really sick? I do not. And if we're talking about younger people, which we are here, what, what, what really is the acceptable risk tolerance? We were told this was about flattening the curve for hospital capacity, not flattening the curve and then reopening and then flattening and then reopening. And that, I mean, this is a this is a recipe for destroying the American economy. Why do we think all the maniacs out there are ruling and running the streets? Because the rest of life is put on hold in places. There are still we, we, we keep saying about the reopen. We're not really reopened. We're not able to go about our normal lives. This is a fiction. There are all kinds of restrictions on gatherings, on office places, on bars, on restaurants. On It's not the same. We're not reopened. We're just beginning to reopen. And they're already saying we got to go backwards. This was about hospital capacity. It was not about waiting out the disease. You can't wait it out. People say, oh, there's going to be a vaccine. Here's Dr. Fauci on how effective a vaccine may be. Play clip five. Out seriously that any vaccine will ever be 100% protected. The best we've ever done is measles, which is 97 to 98% effective. Um, oh, that would be wonderful if we get there. I don't think we will. I would settle for a 70, 75% effective vaccine because that would bring you to that level of would be herd immunity level. Herd immunity. He's talking about the best case scenario of a vaccine and oh my gosh, if we could even get to 70% vaccination level, that would give us herd immunity. What herd immunity means, and this is what everyone keeps forgetting, we're always told, you know, herd immunity is that there are enough people in the herd, so to speak, in the populace that have immunity to this, that they are not vectors of transmission to those who are, uh, who are without immunity and who are at substantial risk, right? So for all of these young people, who are getting this disease, 
after their body clears this, which usually takes about two weeks, once their body clears it, they no longer have to worry, not just about themselves, but from everything we know about viruses and, you know, virology and epidemiology, they will not in six weeks when they want to go see grandma and grandpa be any risk of giving it to them. Unless there's something about this disease that we don't know that's different from other viruses like it. So people who are at low risk getting the disease is how you get closer to herd immunity. What we want essentially is to have, you know, everybody in the country under 50 to have either gotten over this disease or, you know, it'd be great if we could have a vaccination. And that means that it's much, much less likely to get to a community spread level and be a risk to people who are in their 60s, 70s and 80s for whom this disease is vicious and deadly. Right. That's the whole that's the, the, the focus of every effort that we've had in the past to stamp out disease. You're not going to be able to get I mean, with a vaccination. You're not going to be able to get 100 percent coverage. Of course, he's even saying this, even the vaccine itself. Never mind people who don't get vaccinated isn't going to give you 100 percent coverage. But it means that there are enough people that aren't at risk. So, you know, when we hear, oh, there's, you know, 50,000 or 40, it was I think the most recent number was over 30,000 in a day. But let's say there's 50,000 people in Arizona who are under 35 who have a point zero 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 one mortality rate from this disease. Within two weeks, they're they're now in the they're now in the recovered ledger. They're no longer a risk to transmit the disease to other people. Now, it is that's testing is important as the virus is spreading. So people know they have it and can lay low and not spread it to people who are at higher risk. But just because you have the disease spreading among lower risk communities, that's not a good enough reason to shut down all of society. I mean, at what point is it just too high a price to not just ask, but to demand of people? You can't have your life back. Months and months of your life are going to be taken away again. We're going to do this every year. Why not? If it's the moral choice, why not? See, notice we're having the same argument all over again, which I knew we would. And you know why we're having it? It's not just because people are concerned about the disease, which I know a lot of people are. But it's because the country being miserable and scared benefits a political party. And it ain't the Republicans. Thanks for listening to the Bus, Sex, and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We need action right now, and that's why I am setting off the alarm bells for President Trump to declare to renew the public health emergency, which expires on July 25th. A public health emergency must be renewed now. And the worry is that President Trump, in his own inimitable way, will not want to renew the emergency because he wants to deny that it exists, even though everyone knows it does exist. What does the public health emergency do? Let's ask us. Are are we suggesting that there won't be federal assistance to hospitals that need it? There won't be testing that is needed? Well, what what does the public health emergency really accomplish? And why is Chuck Schumer so invested in this? We all understand why. Yet again, the country will be under a state of public health emergency, which will also give additional cover to Democrats, Democrats who are um, out there 
looking for excuses to continue to wield this power against their own populations because their voters, the Democrat voters, are fine with this. They're they're remarkably compliant uh, and submissive to wear a mask, don't wear a mask, just kidding, wear a mask, not sure this time, do what we tell you or else, businesses can't open, can't see your friends, can't see your family. We don't have a plan to get us out of this. We're just going to keep locking down and hiding under our bed from this. Democrats are remarkably compliant about this. And then Republicans find themselves the voices of just reality, never mind even sanity, the voices of reality in some of these blue states. And we're outvoted and there's no way to get things back on track for normalcy. What really is the plan here? Let's extend a public health emergency so we can what get to lockdown 2.0 again. Lock down the borders, lock down everything. Not a lot of coverage in the media about how Mexico, as I saw it recently, was at a 50 percent positivity rating for its uh, or positive testing rating uh, for COVID-19. Not a lot of focus on that. Um, So I find that surprising. Actually, not really surprising at all, is it? They don't want to talk about how other countries are having their own terrible struggles with this. Brazil has had a very hard time with this. Other countries have higher mortality rates, but also are the is the surge in cases in Mexico in any way relevant to, say, Arizona and Texas? I don't know. I don't have proof. I don't have data, but I would certainly want to look at that question. I'd want somebody who is a so-called journalist to find out answers, because this is not about politics. This is about keeping people safe. We should know. We should know where the virus is coming from. It was coming from China. We shut down flights from China. Are there a lot of cross-border viral transmissions going Are you know, people with the virus transiting the border right now and then transmitting it to the American people? That's a very important data point that we, do, we don't have. We don't have answers to. But the worst people when it comes to the response to all this, I mean, the people who are in the weakest position to lecture the rest of us about what's really going on here, They're the ones that have the loudest voices on it, which I suppose in some ways shouldn't be surprising. Here's uh, Governor Cuomo, who is doing a press conference still where he wants to tell people what to do. Because, you know, he says it's the facts and the data. And it's not politics. It's not about politics. But other people are about politics and they were wrong. They did the wrong thing. Don't ask me about nursing homes, though. That's not nice. Play clip 12. Uh, you know, everybody talked about the uh, economic consequence and everybody, the president said we should reopen and that's going to help the economy. It turned out to be exactly wrong. Turned out to be wrong. Yeah, they're wrong. They're wrong. I, I had I had a, a horrific record in New York as the governor. Really the highest death rate for any large Uh, any large single area of the whole world, from what I understand. Worse than anywhere with the possible exception of northern Italy. Uh, New York. If you take New York out of the greater out of the rest of the United States, if New York were its own country, it would be the worst covid response in the on the entire planet. That's saying something, and that's where I'm doing this show right now. I also note this. What do the libs really think that that I don't that, that other conservatives like me who live in these hot spots, who have family members in these hot spots that we just don't care? Oh, we love we just love Trump so much that we don't care about people dying. No, it's not true at all. I love this country. I love this society too much to let it be destroyed for no good reason. It's not a good reason 
to shut down the you know to shut down a state or a city for two weeks, then reopen and then say, oh look, there's more transmission of the virus. Shut it down again. This was never, never agreed to by the American people. There's no legislation about this. This is all by executive order. And the people who are the the symbols of failure on this, like Cuomo, are the ones that are making the most determinations about it. I mean, Governor Newsom, it's amazing. You see the media, Florida. Oh, look at all the cases in Florida. They're so bad. Their governor's terrible. Hey, media, there's also a lot of cases in not just California, but specifically Los Angeles. Oh, well... You know, the Los Angeles governor, I mean, rather the Los Angeles mayor and the governor are Democrats. So that's that's very strange. But we won't talk about that. Let's talk about Florida and how bad it is in Florida again. Media is a disgrace, but that's nothing new. That's nothing surprising. Um, But they do want to mandate mask usage. And this is going to become a big political symbol. Bend the knee. Bend the knee, wear a mask. Look, if I'm in close quarters with people. And they would be more comfortable wearing a mask. I'm not I'm not trying to be a jerk. Right. No one's no one's looking to put people on edge or ill at ease. But when I'm walking the street by myself in New York and there's nobody within 50 feet of me anywhere, which is not hard to do in this abandoned city these days. And I walk and there's somebody with a mask who walks 10 feet past me and they give me a weird look. They're being crazy. They're at no risk of catching the disease from me. That's what all the science actually says. That's what all the experts have said. I'm social distancing blank off. Wearing masks inside grocery stores. I mean, I'll just tell you this. I I think this one through in New York, where we had the worst, the worst instances of community spread, the worst instance of community spread anywhere in the country. So we got hit harder than even now. I know if you listen to this in Texas, you got a lot of cases now. Right. I feel like in the early days of this pandemic, when I was talking about in New York, a lot of you reaching out to me, oh, Buck, you know, it's. This is a New York problem. It's because your subway. And I was like, well, I think it's going to be uh, it's going to spread other places, too. But it's been it was particularly bad here in New York. But now if you're in Arizona, if you're in Texas, if you're in Florida, you got a lot of cases. If you're in Georgia, a lot of cases. Uh, but as, as we look at this and we see what the progression has been over time, uh, there was a period where in New York we were, I'm telling you, you couldn't even get in line socially distanced without a mask on to go into a store. And there were still lots of cases, including cases of people who were non-essential workers getting infected with COVID-19. So if masks protect you the way that we are led to believe they do, remember, if the, if the mask has an efficacy rate against the virus of, you know, it increases the, the, the transmission of uh, the, the, barrier against transmission by five percent is that really is that really uh worth making everybody mask over are you gonna make everyone mask for that at some point we have to look at this it's definitely not 100 percent. it's not like i wear a mask i don't get it people in grocery stores all had masks and yes shoppers were still getting COVID. i want to know how they're wearing a mask Right. Well, what, what if it were as simple as just wear a mask, this doesn't spread, then we should be able to shut this thing down in two weeks. The whole thing. Right. It's not that simple, though, is it? Uh, but they want to believe that it is. They want to pretend that it is. Biden is out there saying that if he's elected, guess what? We're going to keep wearing masks long after he takes office. Play clip four. 
I would insist that everybody on public be wearing that mask. Anyone to reopen would have to make sure that they walked into a business that had masks. I would Couldn't make- you use your federal leverage to mandate that, though? Yes. And you would you? Yes, I would. From an executive standpoint, yes, I would. So you would, in effect, mandate the wearing of masks? I would do everything in my possible to make it make it required that people had to wear masks in public. Based on what in the Constitution? I'm sure they'll say it's the Commerce Clause, because anything that they want to do, they'll say, well, it affects commerce, so it's the Commerce Clause. It's ridiculous, completely unconstitutional. you got to wear a mask. What about wearing a Black Lives Matter T-shirt? Can they mandate that, too? Well, I don't know. Maybe. What else can they what else can they tell you have to put on your body so you can go in public? Federally. Remember, this isn't state. This isn't even a police powers issue or under quarantine. As I as I keep saying, quarantine is for the sick. It's not a power you take it upon yourself to make mandates for the healthy so that they can't become sick. That's not how quarantine works. But here we are, friends. Here we are once again facing the reality of the Democrat mob. Where is our side? Where is our voice? Where is our president right now? You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I was not briefed on the Russian military intelligence, but it shows that we need in this coming defense bill, which we're debating this week, tough sanctions against Russia, which thus far Mitch McConnell has resisted. Oh, here we go. Russia, Russia, Russia. More Russia sanctions, more Russia talk. Because while the country is still in the grip of a pandemic and doing everything that it can to get itself, well, at least some of us are doing what we can to get our our country back up and running. Others are fighting against this. What we really need to focus on is unverified intelligence assessments that there may have been some members of the Russian GRU, their military intelligence, who are going to pay Taliban members bounties to kill U.S. soldiers. What exactly do the Democrats think they're doing here? What's the point of this? Remember, Trump is the one who wants to get us out of Afghanistan. We're trying to he tries to come out and the national security apparatus. Oh, we can't leave. All of our gains will be lost. There's no gains. It's a nightmare. It's a mess. We should leave. We should leave tomorrow. Boom. Gone. Have fun. Good job, Afghanistan. We tried. Let's see what you got. We'll send you some money. That's it. If you if we want to leave some advisors behind for some of the better units. But remember, we're putting those people at risk. Taliban infiltrators. We're not fighting a war to remake a country that does not wish to be remade and has shown us that for 20 years now. This needs to end. But that's actually not what Democrats are about here. You might think, oh, Buck, well, maybe they'll use this. This will be a transition point to we should end the war in Afghanistan. Finally. No, I can end the war in Afghanistan. They don't want it. They don't want to end the war in Afghanistan because Trump will get credit for it. Look at everything that happens between now and Election Day through the Democrats prism of Trump derangement syndrome. And you will understand much more of what is happening. Look at every aspect of the media's coverage through that same prism and nothing will surprise you. This is all about defeating Trump and taking back power. This is what these people live for. This is what gets them excited. What what gets Democrats out of bed in the morning? Right. The ones who are involved in the apparatus of the Democrat Party, in the media, in 
you know, the elite circles of academia and even now corporate America. Democrats back in charge. That's what gets them really excited. Then the country will be so much better off. Everything will be fine. If only we can get Democrats to run the show. And that then brings me to the Russia situation. They want to talk about Russia right now. They're not even sure this this assessment, which the intelligence community, I believe the DNI has already come out and said, among others, that this is not we didn't know this is true. I was in the CIA. They're wrong about stuff in the intelligence community in these assessments regularly, regularly. Okay, we get things wrong all the time. The moment you hear assessment, think of it like you're reading a Wall Street analysis of a stock. 50 50, it's right or wrong. You know, otherwise, just read what the latest analyst at I was going to say Bear Stearns, but that would be very hard or Lehman Brothers. But read what the latest analysis from, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs is on some stock that's out there in the public. And when it's wrong, be like, but Goldman Sachs says. Yeah, guess what? Wrong all the time, especially when it comes to stuff that's free and where they have no interest in you being right. Intelligence community wrong on plenty of stuff. Wrong on plenty of stuff. But then that brings me to uh, what the, why they're talking about this Russia intelligence. All of it. And uh, remember, this is a leak. Again, here's another, another leak of classified information to the media for the purposes of undermining Trump. What is this really about? Well, Nancy Pelosi is always out there, and you can count on her to tell you what's really going on by accident. Because she's, she's just, you know, she's just had too many Chardonnays and she needs a nap. She's the most powerful female Democrat of the country right now. Maybe, okay, maybe second after, after AOC. Play, uh, where, where is this Pelosi saying? Oh, yes, play clip eight. Just as I've said to the president, with him, all roads lead to Putin. He will not, he will, I don't know what the Russians have on the president politically, personally, financially, or whatever it is, but he wants to ignore, uh, he wants to bring them back into the G8 despite the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of Ukraine, despite what, uh, he, what they yielded to him in, in Syria, despite his uh, intervention into our election, which is well documented by our intelligence community. Uh, and despite now possibly uh, this this allegation, which should we should have been briefed on. So Russia, Russia, Russia. Trump is in Putin's pocket. You know, what this is just to use that narrative again after it has been completely debunked, after we've had the Mueller investigation, all the sham, all the scam, you know, Flynn is not a traitor. He was not doing Putin's bidding. The Kizilyak was not some secret back channel that was trying to you know, run the Manchurian candidate Trump. All that lunacy the Democrats believed and shared and propagated for years. All of that gets used once again because there are still idiot Democrats, millions and millions of them who think that like, well, it was proven untrue, but I think it's still true. Even if the facts didn't add up the way that we thought they would, there's still something there. This is, again, talking about Russia. That is one of the it, it is like a like a hamster hitting a pedal for a little pellet. You know, with Democrats, that's what Russia is. Ooh, Russia. It's like Halliburton under the Bush administration. You could be the dumbest person on planet Earth. But if you're talking to a Democrat and you said, yeah, blah, 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 Halliburton, they go, yeah, Halliburton's evil. Yeah. Trump's in Putin's pocket. 
morons believe this and it doesn't matter that it's untrue, Democrats will use this. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our president has also defended religious liberty from the first day of this administration. We restored enforcement of the nation's conscience laws. We ended enforcement of the Johnson Amendment so the freedom of speech does not end at the front door of houses of worship in America. And like no other president in American history, President Donald Trump has stood without apology for the sanctity of human life. So how has this administration done on those issues Uh, on the executive branch level? They've been strong. And the president went to the March for Life and he has followed through on what he said he would. But... Today was not a good day for the pro-life movement and for jurisprudence for the Supreme Court. We had a decision come down where once again, Justice Roberts, the great turncoat of constitutionalism, textualism instead of liberal legislating from the bench. Justice Roberts in a 5-4 struck down uh, struck down a it what seems to be a pretty straightforward case, but of course it is not. It was in June, June Medical Service v. Russo, 5-4 decision. This was about a Louisiana law that required doctors who perform abortions to have admitting rights for patients at a nearby hospital. This is, quite, this is required of all surgical level facilities in the state of Louisiana. And all it would mean is that you have a higher level of safety for women undergoing what is an invasive surgical procedure. Not really a medical procedure, but that's another conversation. A surgical procedure, um, meaning it's not medically necessary. It's a choice that one is making. uh, That this is not acceptable. Because once again, the only right in this country for which there can be no restrictions no limitations whatsoever. It's not speech. It's not the, certainly not the right to bear arms. It's not free, pe- uh, free press, free religion. The right to an abortion is absolute. In fact, the left believes that an abortion should be at any time for any reason uh, and should be paid for by the state and should in and there should be special provisions made so that someone can have no barriers to that. So it has to be essentially free, paid for by you, paid for by tax dollars. Oh, they say that they give money to Planned Parenthood and it doesn't go into abortion. That's a lie. Funds are fungible. We all know this. Uh, but there also can be there. There must be special provisions put in place to make this effectively a super right. You can't you know, if you're standing in front of the door or you, you can't block access, protesters will block access to all kinds of things all the time for other stuff. You know, Black Lives Matter protesters can you know, violate rules on social distancing and they can gather in the street and they can, you know, violate the law and all that. But abortion is is special to the left. It is the single uh, most clear defining separation between Democrats and Republicans on any issue right now. You cannot be a Democrat in good standing and be pro-life. It is not possible. You're only allowed to be a Democrat who is pro-life for the purposes of getting elected. And then you're expected to change. Then you're expected to shift and vote with the uh, pro-abortion Democrats. 
But here is this the the, the basics of this case are um, and this the, the basics of this case are as follows. Liberals believe that abortion is sacred and cannot ever be in any way restricted or or even just there can be no regulations of it, really. And abortion is just, you know, you, got, you can do it whenever you want, wherever you want, however you want. And it has a special place separate from normal medical procedures because it's about access. You see, they want to make sure it's really easy to get one. And in Louisiana, if this law had passed, it would have meant that the three abortion clinics might have gone down to two or even one in the state. And they want to make sure there are a lot of people having abortions in Louisiana. That That's... That's what the Democrat Party believes in. They think that this is uh, a a necessary and and a good thing. So because it would have made it more difficult for the abortion industry to continue, the justices by a 5-4 decision found that, no, this law is unconstitutional. Uh, And really what Roberts did here was say that stare decisis, essentially looking at precedent, stare decisis, Because four years ago, the Supreme Court, by a 5-3 vote, struck down a similar Texas law, even though Roberts thought he said that one was wrongly decided. It was wrongly decided, but it was decided that way. But now, since it's decided that way, Roberts is saying, well, it was already decided. This is cowardice, cowardice from the bench. That's what this is from somebody who was a Bush appointee to the Supreme Court. And if you want to sit around and wonder, well, maybe the Trump experiment, I don't know. I mean, Trump is, you know, he's problems. It's not so good. And I'm not sure about Trump and all this stuff. Remember that Bush gave us Roberts, who is now the great turncoat of the Constitution on the bench and tried to give us Harriet freaking Myers as the second Supreme Court pick. Fortunately, everybody with two brain cells freaked out at him. And then he switched and gave us Alito, who has been. Rock solid, really. I mean, not perfect, but really, a really strong constitutionalist. And yeah, now you look at what what we get from the Bush administration, though, if they're if they're left to their own devices. And that's the oh, let's do something that the Democrats won't be that mad at us for. You know, when you take that approach, when you take that opinion, uh, turns out you don't get anything in return. You just have a more. Uh, you, you just lose. You just lose. And they like that you lose so that they'll keep encouraging you to make concessions so that you can continue to lose as a conservative. Uh, but this this is not an overly complicated uh, decision. Anything that re- anything that could have the effect, even if it's otherwise legitimate and even necessary for safety, anything that could have the effect of making abortion less available to the public um, is unacceptable. I've I mean, this is there's no other right that is treated this way. And it's not even a real right. It's fabricated out of the Constitution because of Roe v. Wade. This is what we're up against. This is what the left does. The left does not believe that the words in the Constitution, or the words in statute have plain meaning. It means whatever the heck they tell you it means or else. That's what that's their version of legal and, and uh, statutory interpretation. Whatever they wanted to say, it says. And if you have a problem with that, they're going to come after you. That's how the left does judge stuff. Um, it's also why, you know, you, you, you think that you have a conservative majority in the Supreme Court. That's what we were led to believe. No, you don't. No, you don't. This guy is, this guy is Kennedy all over again. On the big issues, the, the left always gets its way. 
which is why all these campaigns, all these legal centers and all these you know, the law schools and the think tanks, they're all just now propaganda mills for the left. And uh, all they need is one judge who's a conservative who wants to have books written about him by legal scholars who will be predominantly libs, of course, and by law schools. You know, the law school teachers, professors will all be telling uh, their students that, you know, sure, Roberts was a constitutionalist, but, you know, he was he was an ethical one who on the big social issues was not a total evil bigot racist, unlike the other constitutionalists like Scalia and Thomas. And I know Scalia's passed away, but you know what I mean? Unlike them, they're bigots. They're bad people. Roberts was wrong on stuff, but on the big stuff, he was he came through. And look, it's uh, this guy. That's very powerful. That's very compelling. That's what really matters to him. That's what he wants. Everything else is really just noise. Everything else is just kind of a, a make believe. Right. This is about ego and vanity and fear. Roberts would rather be liked by the left than be hated by them. And so he's willing to throw the Constitution under the bus once again and and to claim that this is he's remember he's claiming that an earlier decision that he thought was wrongly decided but where he didn't have the votes his side of it didn't have the votes because that was decided that way then now when he could have the votes he's saying well i don't have the votes because of that earlier decision as in i'm going to be a vote against it because of the earlier decision where i thought it was wrong a fourth grader knows this is not ethical but Roberts is a coward. The left has co-opted him. That's where we are. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Today, I'll sign an executive order that directs the federal government to replace outdated and uh, really outdated. It's called degree-based hiring with skill-based hiring. So we want it based on skill. The federal government will no longer... Be narrowly focused on where you went to school, but the skills and the talents that you bring to the job, we want that skill to be there. We want it based on merit. We've looked at merit for a long time, and we've been able to get that done. And today's signing is a very, very important one. I think now this legislation, how important it is or not, we'll have to see. I'd have to dig into it a bit more. But I think this this notion of changing the way that we that we gauge for merit for hiring uh this is this is happening and we need to have a better understanding of it as a as a culture as a society going forward we here here's how i see it for uh for a while we had this system where if you were a considered a pretty good student and had the financial means you got to go to a four-year college and that that meant that you were somebody who you know, had aspirations of a certain kind and you went to a four year college and that was a big. So you got that degree, but it was really about having that resume bullet. Right. So when you apply for jobs, you got a four year degree. And so then everyone said, OK, well, if having a four year degree means that you're the kind of person that employers want to hire and you're going to have higher lifetime earnings. And I know this is not always the case, by the way, but I'm saying this was the, the broad thinking Let's make sure that pretty much everybody can get a degree, a four year degree now, or make it easier than ever. More people than ever will be getting these. And that what that began to happen. And so what was the response to that from those who had more academic options and, and resources at their disposal? Well, now I'm going to get an advanced degree. And everyone's like, oh, OK, well, it's not enough to have an undergraduate degree. Now you got to get a master's or a J.D. 
you know, get a law degree or get get a, you know, MD has always been, that's quite a, you're signing on for a lot with that one, but certainly a lot of master's degrees and JDs. And now there are more people than ever before with master's degrees. Fortunately, the, I think there was a little bit of a moment in time where people sort of think, well, maybe I'll get a PhD. And then they realized, do you want to spend like four or five years alone in a library writing books or writing a, a thesis that no one's ever going to read? Because if the answer to that is no, you probably don't want to get a PhD, at least in the humanities. So but, but the, it, it turns into this arms race. And now you, you get into, you know, an arms race of education. How do you what's the difference if you're going to hire somebody who has a you know, a 3.5, which I feel like every college, everyone's got a 3.5 GPA, right? Oh, I got a 3.5. Yeah, that means you showed up for class and didn't stab anybody with a pencil. Uh, I know, I speak the truth. Some people don't like to hear this stuff, but it's true. So, you know, everybody graduates with honors from everywhere. You know, this is where I graduated from honors with, uh, with honors from Amherst, and it's like, no one's ever asked me, no one cares, and I feel like half the class graduated with honors. It means nothing. Um, but you look at this, the way it turns into higher requirements for the federal government. And I think technically, even for my job at the CIA, I was supposed to have a master's or an advanced degree, and I didn't. But I just clearly could handle the analytic workload based on the interviews and the essay writing and the hiring process that I went through. So they're like, all right, well, for you, I guess it's okay. But not every federal, not every part of the federal government has that requirement. And also they brought in people who had a master's degree but and I'm not trying to be that guy. They had a, an undergraduate degree from a very um, non elite academic institution and a master's degree from some online, you know, university of dot com that nobody had ever heard of. But that guy comes in or a gal comes in making, you know, 20 percent more, 30 percent more than me right off the bat. So I'm thinking, well, hold on a second. You know, I, I, I thought going to an elite, insti- you know, so-called elite institution would be hey, the point is it just all gets you know, turns into this jumbled mess of, well, who should you really hire? And what we find out is what you want is to hire people who are competent, ethical, hardworking, can get the job done, have the skill set, have the right attitude. You know, you, you, that's what you want to find out. And a resume is increasingly a difficult thing to decipher if you're going to rely on where did this, you know, do, does this person have a certain degree from a certain place? Because if you're talking about a lot of soft skill based jobs and the federal government is full of those. Uh, what makes somebody a good bureaucrat? They show up on time. They don't make too much noise. They do what they're told. They go home. Boom. Good, good bureaucrat. How do you tell if one person's better for that job than another? A lot of federal government jobs, you know, you're starting out making. I mean, I don't know what they start out at now, but if you've got a degree, maybe an advanced degree, you know, you're making 70, 75,000 a year and you're you got really nice health benefits, great health. And you're essentially unfireable. You know, so these are desirable jobs. How do you determine who gets them and who doesn't can't tell from a resume? But we also just need it. So so the federal government is never going to be very good at this. They're never going to be very good at hiring. They weren't when I was at the CIA. And I mean, they get people you know, applying all the time who are like, you don't understand. I'm very sneaky and I throw ninja stars very well. Hire me, CIA. And I'm, I'm not kidding that there are people who apply who think that, you know, the James Bond stuff is real, of course. But uh, exploding cufflinks. Uh, but for our more, more broadly speaking, the best experience I've ever the best work, work experience I've ever had is work experience or the best resume uh, lines I've ever had involve actually doing a job because doing a job is a skill, right? This is something else that you, and if you have it, and that's why I think these unpaid internships that are always just, 
Uh, they're, they're finally phasing them out. I had to do a bunch of them because that was just the, the expectation at the time. It's exploitation. It's exploitation. What, you're going to tell me? I mean, I, I was an intern at CBS Evening News with Dan Rather. And, you know, th- that place is, is spending tens of millions of dollars a year, to put, uh, a year to put on, you know, Dan Rather is a joke and a clown and an idiot put on his show. And they got me. They got other interns in there. You, you can't pay us minimum wage. Dan Rather will get up there. Oh, the minimum wage is very important. And let me look in the camera now and be all serious. You can't pay the interns minimum wage. Well, you say, oh, Buck, they shouldn't have an intern problem, uh, intern program. OK, well, then you don't get to have an intern program, but you don't get to be an advocate for the minimum wage and then have this end run where all these people are working for free for free. Uh, I will say that some of the capitalists that I knew growing up, some of my friends' dads were always very, and they were very successful guys, and they were like, don't work for free. Do a job. Get a paycheck. Understand what it is to work because you're, you're, the expectations when you're getting a paycheck are also different. Uh, and you should see what it looks like when the government starts to take that big bite out of the pie every time you get a paycheck. You say, oh, wait, I'm paying for, what's this about? What's this about uh, payroll tax? Wait, I'm, I'm funding what exactly here? It's important that people get that at a very young age. But skills are acquired and honed. Skills do not come from a piece of paper. Skills do not come from just being present at an elite institution. And increasingly, these institutions, anyone who's paying attention, I'm talking about Harvard, I'm talking about Yale, they're watered down now to a point where they're just big social engineering experiments churning out a lot of people who think they're much more impressive than they are. And I, you could say this about my school, too, which is not as elite as Harvard and Yale, but it's considered a very good place. It's true of every school I know of. And everywhere that I've, and, and everywhere that I've, I've thought about going for master's degrees and advanced degrees, the market is flooded with all this stuff. What people really want to know is, what are you good at? What do you like to work with? Are you trustworthy? Are you honorable? How we start to, f- how we start to figure out who has those skills is much more important than you know, what you can put under schooling and degree uh, on your resume. So I just think we need to have a reordering of our thinking about hiring and and what kind of people we want in the workplace with us uh, based upon those ideas instead of where'd you go to school? Thanks for listening to the Bus, Sex, and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. show ain't over yet folks keeping it real it's time for roll call it's roll call and you might have picked up that we got the music playing which means that the one and only producer mark is back in the mix this week. Yay! Clapping. I don't want to clap because it's tuned into the mic, but yay, Producer Mark. How you doing, buddy? How was your, your time away? Well, it wasn't exactly a planned time away, so I was a little bored. Played a lot of 2K. Uh, what's 2K? You know, NBA 2K. Oh! Video game. Isn't that an old one? No, they, they refresh it every year, so this is 2K20. Oh! Yeah. See, I remembered it from when it was actually NBA 2K. Like the, the original. The, the original one. Yeah, I was like, you're playing a wow. 20-year-old video game? That's you, an interesting move. Not that that would be old. crap. I mean, I still, I still think there's some old video games that are a lot of fun. I don't think that would... I think NBA Jam would be the classic basketball game you'd go back and play. I might still have to get a PlayStation 4. I feel like, hmm. you know, if I'm going to be locked down in quarantine... I mean, New York's going to go into quarantine again this winter time. I can just tell. 
So I, I better have something to entertain myself other than just, you know, eating ice cream until I pass out. Oh, I did that, too. Don't worry. Yeah. No, I, I've, I've, though, I've decided that my, my freezer, now when I get through an ice cream, I don't replace it. I don't replace it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clear out all the ice cream in the next few weeks because that's really just, it's just so easy at night to be like, oh, dinner was nice. And you didn't, I didn't have that, that necessarily naughty of a dinner, but it's just so easy to reach for that pint of, you know, chocolate, vanilla, coffee. I have a honeycomb ice cream that's amazing because I like bougie ice cream. I hadn't had it in a long time, and I got at the store, you know, the hard shell chocolate that goes on ice cream and freezes? Oh, yeah. Oh, I missed it so much. I can never get it again, though. Yep. The whole bottle was gone in a few days. Delicious. Well, we're glad you're back, buddy, and everybody missed you. So when, you know, they did not, the, uh, the loony left did not show up in a mob outside Mark's house and take him away and brainwash him or anything. He's fine. He's back. He's yeah, good. I didn't see all those team producer Brandon people come out of the woodwork like they usually do when I'm away. So that's surprising. Ah, well, I'm just saying, you know, the, pe- the people, the people like producer Mark. What could I tell you? Um, Michael. First up here. Oh, wait, wait, of course, because Mark is back now also. We're going to have the voicemail box, which I want you all to keep calling into. We have a lot of fun with that. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. And so there you go. And now let's get to uh, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton or Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. If you want to email us, that's Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. Michael, first up here. Buck, love the show. I've gotten three of my kids interested in it. The dichotomy of our presidential candidates is interesting. Trump has been forcefully isolated from his supporters for months with everything going on. His rally and speech to students for Trump are rejuvenating him. He needs to be out among the people. Biden, on the other hand, can only survive by being isolated and getting out among the people. And that can only hurt his campaign. Thanks. And shields high. No, Michael, I think this is true. I think that that the longer that the lockdown goes on, Trump is disadvantaged by not being able to rally his base by going to and having rallies Biden the idea of Biden is what they want to push they don't actually want Biden the person to be running they want this candidate of Biden that the media will construct to be their candidate they don't want Biden out there you know yeah man I sound tired I don't know where I am and I'm just you know corn pop is calling me and I'm just you know is it Tuesday or Wednesday? Is it 1940? What year is it? I don't know what's going on. Yep. Biden. They don't want that. They'd rather just have Joe Biden is clearly the guy who can get things done. Obama's vice president. Everybody loves him. He's great. He's going to restore America. That's what they're going to say. And if no one sees him, it's easier to make that case. Christine. Where are all the conservative voices in the House and the Senate? Where is Rand Paul, Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, Louis Gomer, Jim Jordan? And the rest of the so-called conservatives, they should all, and I left many names out, be screaming for unity on the right and doing what's right for America and standing behind President Trump. This is not a political game. This is a a crossroads for the Republic versus Marxism. If the wrong side wins this war, they have no job and we have lost our country as it was founded. Um, Christine, I completely agree that there is a lack of of um, unity and urgency on the right at this point in time. The Trump campaign is not winning. This campaign is not winning. Let's all be very clear and honest about that. They are not doing what needs to be done right now to get 
the administration, not just to get the base motivated. What is the what is the reasoning to vote for Trump for the next term? What What's the case for Trump 2.0 right now for four more years? Are you hearing it? I'm not hearing it. And I work in media. Where is it? Who's making it? Oh, the liberals are crazy. Yeah, we know the liberals are crazy, but they're ruining the country. And what are we doing about it? Not enough. It's not enough. It's it's insufficient. Graham writes, hey, Buck, NASCAR cars have fenders, quarter panels, rear fenders and bumpers. This allows cars to bump and rub each other going around the track. Watching these intense actions is the allure of watching NASCAR. This kind of stuff really picks up at the end of the race. F1 and Indy are known as open-wheel racing. These cars cannot bump as they will damage the car's steering and will wreck immediately. Shields high. Well, Graham, thank you for the uh, thank you for the tutorial. And yes, I you know I'd like to think that I know a little bit about bump and rub from you know being on Earth for almost forty years now, and so. Yeah, you know a thing or two about bumping and rubbing? I, I think I know about that. I think I know right. some things about bumping and rubbing, you know? I'm better glad. After a few, better after a few drinks most of the time. Not too many drinks, though. I'd rather do that than ever watch a NASCAR race. Hey, email producer Mark on that one, guys. He's on, he's on his own. I'm just saying, if I want to watch somebody make a left turn driving really fast, I'll go look at the highway. Wow. He's back, folks. He's back, and he is here to antagonize the NASCAR NASCAR fans in our audience. They should be lucky I wasn't around last week. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do not. I look. I don't know anything about NASCAR. I mean, to me, you know, I, I've seen. I've been to professional bull riding several times. I think that's a lot of fun, and I just, I don't know. I just like the whole atmosphere. And I think it's, it's just cool. I, I do not. I have never been to a NASCAR race, so maybe that's something that will change my thinking on this. Uh, we'll have to see. Michael, is Fauci running for president with his prominence in the media? You'd think so. Riot shields high. Uh, Michael, I don't think Fauci has that plan to run for president. I don't think so, but you never know. Depends. How strong is the mitigation? How, how much does the data tell us going forward? You know, some people here and there and everywhere bumping and rubbing, spreading the virus. Yep. That's a thing. David, Buck, love you and producer Mark. Keep up the fight. Disagree with you on how Trump is handling the anarchists. It's a smart political move to allow them to destroy their Democrat-controlled cities while constantly offering to help and being rebuffed. He'll pick up votes from even Democrats who want law and order return. No matter what, he will not allow any federal monuments to be vandalized anymore. He has to play it smart, exerting too much federal power at the moment, considering even his top generals have showed open insubordination is too risky. He's smart. He knows when to seize the opportunity to make his move. Don't worry. Shields high. Well, David, I, I disagree with your assessment on this. Obviously, I think the president is allowing the narrative of the Trump administration can't protect you to get way too widespread and have far too many data points. But I'm, I'm hoping you're right and that I'm wrong. So we'll see. Uh, when you say Trump knows when to seize the opportunity and make his move, I feel like the opportunity started about a month ago, and I have not really seen it yet. So that's what I got for you there. Hillary, I wrote my congressman. I urged him to fight with others in our state and those from other states. I urged him to support our president and to push the true narrative in every venue possible. I will also write my senator and the president. I'm tired of being quiet. Thank you for your voice. 
Hillary, thank you for standing up and making sure that your voice is heard. I know these days it's easy for people to just throw their hands up in frustration and despair, but it is much more useful uh, for us all to take whatever actions we can individually and, and as a group to try and save the country. I mean, I, I do think that the future of the country is is at stake. Yeah, maybe, you know, if the Democrats, if Biden wins this fall, you know, maybe they uh, are only able to destroy the country for the next 10 years or so. But I don't like that. I don't want to have a country where there's lawlessness and increasing um, Marxism and a turn in prosperity, a turn in freedom against us. I don't like that. I don't want that. So that's why we fight. Tony, you were dead on during Friday's show. The attacking police is straight out of Michael Collins's playbook during the Irish Rebellion, delegitimizing the police and then getting an overreaction from paramilitary force to sway public opinion. This has been used by every revolutionary since then, including Mao, and exactly what AQI was doing to us in Ramadi in 06 using the big IEDs on the police stations in order to break the local cops. It got worse as the awakening started gaining traction. Keep up the fight. Well, Tony, thank you for your service. And as I said, those of you who are veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan and, and have been counterinsurgency fighters know exactly what I'm talking about here. They know that it, you undermine the police as a way of destabilizing society because if you can stop new recruits from showing up to police stations— if you can kill police officers, make them fearful of doing their jobs, and the population feels like the cops can't protect them, you know what ends up happening? They feel like the government is failing them, and then when someone comes along and says, look, we know you don't like us, we know you've heard bad things about us, but you will be, you will be able to go get bread and go to the market without fear of being blown up by a car bomb, a lot of people say, okay, AQI, or okay, Taliban, as long as you can do that, at least that's better than what I have with the government. That is how insurgency works. And we're seeing a variant of that, of course, not with not with full scale IEDs and and mass murder, but with destabilization, uh, riots and other forms of threat, uh, threats and coercion from the mob. That's where you are. And people don't feel look, I, it's not safe on the streets of New York at night right now. I'm seeing stuff in New York that I have not seen in 20 years here. And I know the city very well. I'm sure that's happening in other cities across the country, probably much more so. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right. More roll call here. Brad uh, writes. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Griffin writes in. Hey, Buckster. American paper currency has at least a dozen anti-counterfeiting technologies. But these lunatics don't think anyone will counterfeit ballots. When I was a young man, I worked at a commercial print shop. We even handled Green Bay Packer tickets. Do you know how many counterfeit tickets are used at the gate at every Packer home game? Dozens. And this happens at every NFL, NBA rock con and, and rock concert situation. The situation has gotten better in recent years because of scanning barcodes at the gate and taking that ticket out of circulation. But if the Democrats get their way, we will have better ticket integrity at a rock concert than we do in the election. Copying printed materials, the easiest thing in the world to duplicate, especially for hostile foreign governments. Any commercial printer can examine and weigh a paper sample and match it with stock paper in seconds. There's an obvious reason why our, our paper money is made from special paper, actually linen, that can't be bought anywhere else. The print matter itself is easy to duplicate. Trump needs to shut this nonsense down now. 
Uh, yeah, I'm very concerned about election integrity and with this mail in uh, with this mail in election stuff that I mean, de- there's a reason Democrats want it so badly. And it's not because they think it's going to make things more fair. <laughs> it's not because they think that this is going to get the voice of the people heard in a way that it would not have before. So, yeah. Yeah, that's real, Griffin. I, I share your concerns and I worry that this is going to be an issue for us. Um, Brad, hey, Buck, I'm back to work and traveling around the country. I've been from California to Texas by car. I thought when I left California, I would see everything is fine. But that wasn't the case. I'm worried about the president not getting a rightfully deserved second term because it seems even out here in red states, people suffer from Trump derangement syndrome. You're 100 percent spot on about needing conservatives to wake up and step up. I think a lot of conservatives are too scared to put a Trump flag out or bumper sticker. I liked another person's idea that we Trump uh, supporters should fly our American flags high right now as a show of silent support if we can't get more vocal. Don't forget to light them up at night. Brad, I I think you're uh, you're making a very important point here that people need to be willing to at least, you know, the more the more support you see for Trump out there, the more people will feel comfortable supporting Trump. That's one of the great things about the rallies that happened was, you know, you were in an area, let's say, you know, you lived in, uh, you know, I don't know, wherever some of the, I can't even remember off the top of the head where some of the biggest rallies are, but let's say you lived in the, uh, in Oklahoma City and Trump comes through with a big rally and you see 20,000 people inside and another 20,000 outside just to be there. It shows you, yeah, there are people that really support this guy. And it's okay for you as well to support this guy. Now, of course, it's okay, but you know what I mean? It feels less like you're going to be a target. So there you have there you have the reality, I think, going forward of what we need to do. We have to have people who are willing to step up and show their support in ways that will uh, increasingly be essential if we're going to have people or if we're going to be able to win this thing. You know, if we're really planning on winning. Um, and now we'll go to producer Mark always loves when I go rogue on the messages. Now we'll go to the, the Instagram inbox. So let's see here. We have Frankie who writes, come to parlor. Frankie, I'm already there. My man, you got to follow me. I am on the parlor app. Those of you who are listening to this, if you're on parlor, please do follow me. I post there too. I'm posting there just like I'm posting on Twitter. And on Facebook, I think all of you are on Facebook. You should all be following Buck Sexton, the Buck Sexton show on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton is where you go for that. And uh, please, please continue to follow and share and like and all that stuff. Appreciate it very much. Jeff, California, Arizona and Texas coronavirus spike. What do they have in common? The Mexican border. That's the reason. Stop spreading disinformation. Jeff, I didn't I mean, I'm, I'm the one asking questions about this. I don't know why I'm not spread. It's not. First of all, it's not all from across the border. That's for sure. But it's some of it possibly. But geez, Jeff, I'm not spreading disinformation. That's not that's not fair, man. But hey, thank you for writing in. Even if you're just going to be mad at me, Jeff Buck, just saying we're waiting on that Malta podcast. Jeff, I know we're all waiting on it. Be a fun thing to listen to over the 4th of July, though. That's for sure. So maybe that's the closest I can come to any kind of an update on it. Producer Mark is back in action, everybody. We're thankful for that. And we'll be with you every day this week until Friday when we will uh, be off. So thanks for being here. Share the show. Pass the buck. Make sure that everybody knows about this podcast. Oh, and YouTube.com slash Buck Sexton. Follow me on YouTube, too. Shields high.